0: Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 7, starting from verse 1. We'll go all the way to 26. It's going to be a little bit of a longer passage, um, but I think it'll be uh, helpful for us. Um, Once again, my name is Ben. I've been in the city of Austin uh, for the last 15 years, uh, starting 16 now. And it's really been a privilege. Um, I was born in uh, Seoul, Korea, and then when I was 10, our family, we moved to the States. I grew up in the state of Minnesota, which is in the North uh, Midwest, very cold, a lot of snow. Um, And pretty much I've been in that region my whole life. I did my undergrad. Uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, and then right after that I went to the University of Michigan where I met Pastor Seth, and I guess they say the rest is history. And so I've been part of the HMCC Church uh, ever since. Uh, Really is a delight to be uh, with you this uh, weekend. Uh, First of all, I want to thank you guys for hosting me so well. Um, I think you guys have spoiled me. I think when I go back, now I'm going to expect when I wake up in the morning, my wife is going to bring me coffee and... But she's not, and she's going to yell at me, and she's going to say, you've been spoiled because you've been away, so please go get me some coffee. And so I want to thank you guys for uh, just being so hospitable. Um, I've been really blessed by just the different interactions that I've had with many of you. And then also, I want to take this time to really recognize Pastor Seth. Um, He's been so influential in my life, and I really want to honor him because in so many ways, the ways that God has shaped me. uh, It was through Pastor Seth. Uh, It was actually through Pastor Seth during my earlier days that he was the catalyst in which uh, he really helped me to mature in my faith and really understand what it means to be part of the local church and to love the local church. And it was a really struggle. I was sharing a little bit of, even after I graduated, of staying in Ann Arbor, Michigan and continuing to serve the church there because I wanted to go somewhere else, but just really learning to live my life in obedience and Pastor Seth was able to walk me through it. And then also that process of realizing that maybe God has this call for me to go into the ministry. And it was actually Pastor Seth and his prayer for me and his encouragement to me and just him once again walking me through that process of my life. And I remember after coming to that conclusion that maybe this is the calling that God has for me, you know, I was so eager. Uh, I just wanted to go now. And I remember Pastor Seth sitting me down and we had a heart to heart where he uh, kindly but firmly let me know that maybe you need to wait a year or two uh, to continue to develop. And you know, those were not the words that I wanted to hear, um, but those were the words that I needed to hear. And I know that he spoke those words into my life because he loved me and he cared for me. And even that process of just really helping me to develop as a young pastor, he married my wife and I when we first came down to Austin to start the church, it was a very hard process for me. I think I was still trying to grow into um, the person that God was calling me to be, and that process of realizing, okay, these are your strengths, but then also these are your weaknesses, and really growing comfortable and knowing who you are. That was a really hard process for me as a pastor, but Pastor Seth was there every single step of the way, really walking through and just providing that counsel as well as just providing that comfort, even for my wife and I through those difficult years. And then I remember when he took his family to Indonesia, I was thinking, what in the world is he doing? And then he came back, and then he took his family again to Hong Kong. And I think it really inspires me. And when I think about Pastor Seth and the ways that God moves and works in his life, and really the vision that he has, not only for the local church, but really for the world. I think it really inspires me, even to this day. Past, you know, God continues to uh, use Pastor Seth to really help me to move forward just in my ministry as well. And so you know, he was, uh, he's been my pastor for the longest time. Um, he's uh, a mentor, uh, he's a dear friend, and I still consider him my pastor, and so Pastor Seth, I really want to thank you for that. So it really is a privilege uh, to be here. Um, to share the God, uh, the Word of God with you all this morning. Now, I'm still um, struggling a little bit with jet lag, which means I'm a little bit tired. And so in our church, people know that I'm tired because (laughs) when I don't get enough uh, sleep because I'm trying to pull a late night, (laughs) preparing my sermon and so forth, um, I have this tendency to slur my words a little bit. And so if I start doing that, people will come up to me after the service and they'll be like, you're tired today. I'll be like, yes, I was. I was very tired this morning. And so if I start slurring my words a little bit, please forgive me. Um, I'm trying to still adjust a little bit uh, to the jet lag. Uh, We are continuing in our series, uh, Practices. And today we want to talk specifically about the practice of confession, uh, the practice of confession, and I would also say repentance. Uh, Now, when you think about this practice of confession, confession, excuse me, It seems pretty straightforward, right? Especially for those of us who kind of grew up in the church. Uh, I think we know the importance of confession because we know that there is sin and brokenness in our lives. One of the things that we always talk about in our church in Austin is that regardless of whether you're in the church or outside the church, regardless of whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, I think all of us would recognize that there is brokenness in our society and there's brokenness in our lives. And we know that the sin and brokenness in our lives it ultimately pulls us away from God. And so when we engage in this practice of confession and repentance, what that does is it allows a way for us to, once again, to be reconciled back to God. And so when you think about this practice of confession and repentance, especially in the context of our relationships, we know that it's very important because when there is brokenness, that that brokenness ultimately hinders our relationship from thriving, right? And so we need to confess those things to one another, or or else that relationship will never uh, be healed, and it will, in fact, become more strained. And this is actually one of the things that my wife and I have been learning uh, with our kids, and so I have a picture. Um, One of the things that uh, my wife and I are trying to navigate as our boys are getting a little bit older, so my two oldest one, they're in high school now, my youngest, uh, he's still in elementary school, uh, but I don't know how the culture is here in Hong Kong, but in the US, um, there's a debate amongst the parents uh, in terms of when they should have their, allow their kids to have cell phones. So there's one school of thought, you just give them the cell phone as early as possible because it just makes your life a lot more convenient. And there's the other school of thought where you hold off as late as possible, and when you give them a phone, you give them a dumb phone. right? You don't give them a smartphone so that they don't do stupid things. And so I think we tend to fall on that side of the camp, except I was looking really hard for a dumb phone for my kids, but then they really resisted because a lot of the things that they're doing now for schools, they need a smartphone. And so we said, okay, we're going to hold off until you uh, start high school. And so even for my uh, kids amongst their friends, they were one of the later ones to get their phones. And so they have their phones now. And so one of the things that we're really trying to help them to do is to develop a healthy relationship with the devices that they have in their lives. And so when I think about even that concept, it's such a different world, right? Because when I was growing up, the devices in my life was my bike, (laughs) it was my bed. I mean, those were the devices in my life, a typewriter. But now my kids, they have iPads, they have, well, they don't have iPhones yet. They're eyeing for Apple products. We gave them Samsung and we said, you have to settle for an Android. They're like, no, my friends have Apple. And we're like, well, you know what? That's just the way that it is. You're part of a pastor's family. So (laughs) Um, and so one of the things that we've been doing is to really help them to develop a healthy relationship with their devices. And so we made this policy where in certain areas of our house, So, for example in their bedrooms they're not allowed to have any devices in there at any time for any reason and then even their devices they have to use it uh, in open spaces which means living room dining room kitchen and that's it you can't take it into the bathroom Uh, you can't take it into the area where you're just there by yourself and so we're trying to help them to develop these healthy relationships but i also know that from time to time they slip. That they, so they say they forget, right? Oh, I forgot that I'm not supposed to use my phone in, your, in my room. And I, we have this argument, I'm like, how can you forget? We just had this conversation yesterday. But they're like, I forgot, right? And so it's like this tug, this wrestling that happens going back and forth. And inevitably when that happens, if, that, if they're not willing to confess, if they're not willing to man up, if they're not willing to fess up for the mistake that they made, inevitably that creates a bigger strain and that causes bigger problems between my wife and I and our kids. Versus if they're willing to confess, then that actually helps in the process of, it, it really allows us to trust them a little bit more. And so when we think about this aspect of confession, it really makes sense in the, when we think about the more important relationships that we have uh, in our lives. And I think we understand that in our relationship with God as well, but here's the reality, right? The reality is that when we think about this practice of confession and repentance, even though we might understand that it's important for us, but the reality is that it's really hard for us to engage in consistent, and I would even say, biblical practice of confession and repentance. And here's the, here's the really important thing for us to understand, that when you think about this practice of confession and repentance, you have to understand that it's, it's not really primarily for God's benefit, but it's really for us, because that becomes the vehicle that God uses to mold our lives. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, uh, Pastor John Ortberg, he's a pretty influential pastor back in the US. This is what he writes. He says, and I quote, confession is not primarily something God has us do because he needs it. God is not clutching tightly to his mercy as if we need to pry it from his hands like a child's last cookies. We need to confess in order to heal and be changed, unquote, right? So when you think about this, this practice of confession, it's not for God's benefit. It's not for his sake, but it's for our benefit, because that becomes the vehicle that God uses to bring about healing and change in our lives. So as we continue on, I know that uh, one of the things that you guys have been doing during the series is uh, huddle groups. And so I do want to give us some time to get together in our huddle groups And so here's two questions that I would love for you guys to discuss together for the next, I don't know, three minutes or so, okay? So the first question is, when you hear the word confession and repentance, what comes to mind? So when you first hear the word confession and repentance, what pops up in your mind and why? Think about that. Maybe that's what you heard, um, some of you who have church background, or maybe that's what you've experienced. What are your impressions of it? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it neutral? And why? And then the second question is what do you think are some hurdles or what do you think are some barriers that get in the way of people engaging in consistent confession and repentance? And we're not just talking about, you know, like time to time when you come to church and when the pastor says you have to repent, but this consistent confession and repentance. And when you don't really see that in your life, what do you think are some of the barriers that stand in the way for us of really engaging in consistent practice of confession and repentance, okay? So why don't we do that? Why don't we break up into maybe two or three people around you and maybe we can just quickly share our answers with one another. So let's do that together. We're going to start at verse one and we'll go all the way down to 26, okay? And so I want to try to approach this topic in a, in a different way. I, I know that there's different parts of whether it's Apostle Paul's writings and so forth, and maybe even the Psalms that we can point to, uh, but I wanted to use this story. So I wanted to approach it more from a story aspect of it, and this is actually a negative um, example of someone uh, who suffered terribly because they refused to engage in this practice of confession. And so let's go ahead and read this together. It says... But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmine, son of Zebdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are a few." So only 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent, at the hearts of the people, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, and fell to the earth and his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? With that, you have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. The Lord said, O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, And will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Then the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes By lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with a devoted thing shall be burned with fire he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken, and he brought near the clans of Judah, And the clan of Zerahite was taken, and he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zebdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zebdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them, and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath, and they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, they laid them down before the Lord and Joshua, and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up in the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, "Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today." And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his anger. Excuse me. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Okay. I know that this is a long passage, but as we look into the passage today, the one thing that I want to give us this morning simply is this. That it's through our confession that we are able to know and receive God's grace and forgiveness. That it's through our confession that we are able to know and receive God's grace and forgiveness. So there's two observations that I want to make about why confession is so important. Now, just a caveat, whenever in our church I say there's two observations I want to make, they know that there's two observations, and then underneath it there's like three sub-observations. All right? So so that you guys are aware there's two observations two main observations that i want to make today okay the first observation simply is this that we need to understand the seriousness of sin that we need to understand the seriousness of sin right so in order for us to understand why what Achan did was such um, why it was so bad why it brought about such calamity not only for himself but for Israel, we have to go back to Joshua 6. Joshua 6, 18 through 19, God tells them specifically, he says this, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Right. So God says you shall not take these things because they... Belong to me. So he clearly tells them not to touch the devoted things. But we see in Joshua 1 that Achan took the very things that God clearly told them not to. And think about that. So as a result of his sin, we see that the nation of Israel, that they're defeated by Ai, and Achan and his family, that they were destroyed. And it's really interesting because even though it's Achan specifically who took those things, the Bible says what? It's Israel who sinned. And so when you think about the story, it seems a bit harsh, right? So Achan took some devoted things, but then he ended up getting stoned, and his family was burned, and with all of his possessions, and you're thinking, oh man, that seems a little too much. But this is where we really have to make sense of this account, not according to our understanding of sin and brokenness, and not from our own experience and perspective, but really understand sin and brokenness from God's perspective. Because I think in many ways, we do understand that, yes, there are consequences to our sin. But then it's also easy for us to really brush our, you know, like shove our sins under the rug where we say, okay, certain things in my life, I'm not going to do because they're just really bad. We kind of have categories, right? But then other things, uh, you know what? If I take the train and, I don't know, like someone did the pass and then I... I don't, I don't I'm just making this up. I don't know if this would even work in Hong Kong or not, right? But then you just kind of rapidly went after them so you didn't have to You, you guys are probably thinking pastor that would never happen, but if that ever happened, right? Sometimes in the US, there's tolls And you pay money and then there's gates, but it's automated and so some people what they do is they Follow really close to the car that went through so they don't have to pay the toll, right? And so sometimes, you know, like we have categories of, this is really bad, but these other things, eh, it's not. Okay, so it's sin, but it's not that bad. But we have to understand this from God's perspective. Because when Achan confesses, when he fesses up to the thing that he did, we see that, yes, there's one way that we understand sin, but there's another way that God understands what sin is. Because this is how God understands Achan's sin. Look at verse 11. So one commentator, he points out that there's six specific verbs that are used to describe Achan's sin. And so we see that the way that, This book describes Achan's sin. It says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed or violated my covenant. They have taken, they have stolen, they have lied. They have put them amongst their own. And so what the writer is doing here is really emphasizing. And so he is intentionally building up from one to the other. And he's really describing the totality of their offense against God. And it's describing how seriously inoffensive. offensive Sin is to God, right? And it's not just some general sense of sin, but God makes it very clear that it's the betrayal of their covenant with God. He says, you have betrayed this covenant with me. When you think about what God is saying, it's literally the same language that is used when one spouse commits adultery against another. And in fact, when you think about how the Bible describes our sin, in many ways, it describes it in a way where we're committing adultery against God. And so you think about adultery in marriage, that's pretty serious. And God says, that's how I view the sins that you commit against me. Because it's a violation of this covenant that we have made with God. That when we betray that covenant, ultimately that leads us to become separated from God. Now listen to what Cornelius plantiga he's a famous American theologian, listen to what he writes about this topic of sin, he says, and I quote, "'The Bible presents sin by the way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness, expressed in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door, In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. And it does all this disrupting and resisting in a number of intertwined ways, unquote. And what Dr. Plantiga is helping us to see is just how serious sin is. Sin is the act of, as one American pastor says, sin is, when you think about sin, it's the act of dethroning God. Right? It's the act of shoving God off of His throne and installing something or someone else on that throne. So when we sin, in a way, we're saying, God... Instead of worshiping you, I worship convenience, or I worship my own security, or I worship my own pride. So we see the devastating impact of sin. First of all, we see from the story that sin negatively impacts those around us. So when you think about the sin in your life, it's not just you and how it negatively impacts you, but ultimately the sin in our lives negatively impact the people around us. Because once again, we know clearly that it was Achan. He was the individual who took these items. But then the way that the Bible describes it, it makes it very clear that it says, the people of Israel broke faith in regards to the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So the anger of the Lord just, it didn't just burn against this one individual, but the entire people. And again, in verse 11, Israel has sinned. And so what this is pointing us to and reminding us is that when we sin, that there are consequences for the entire people of God, for our spiritual family. So think about your spiritual family. Because sin is never just an individual matter. So that when you choose to sin, not only does it impact you, but it impacts the people in your life group. It impacts the people that you're serving together on ministry teams. It impacts the people that are worshiping with you right now here in this space. And so when you think about why sin is devastating, that's why it's so devastating. Because it impacts the entire people of God. Achan's sin also had devastating consequences, not only just for his spiritual family, but for his immediate family as well. We know that his immediate family, that they also experienced God's wrath and destruction. And clearly here, we know that God isn't holding his kids and his wife responsible for Achan's sin. Because God makes it very clear that when you sin, You yourself are responsible for sin. So for example, in Deuteronomy 24, 16, we read, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And so each one will be accountable for their own sin. And so you think about, so it's Achan who sinned, yet his family was destroyed. So what's going on here? What's going on here? is we have a picture of Achan actually leading his family into sin. So think about what happened. And this is just using our imagination. But as he brought back the stolen items, and as he hid them in his tent, he probably told his family, you know what, don't mention this to anyone. Let's just keep this amongst ourselves. And instead of leading his family towards God, Achan was leading his family towards death, away from God. And when I think about the story as a husband and as a father, this is really a sobering thought. That when I sin before God, that not only does it impact me and my relationship with God, but when I continue to walk in that sin, it actually impacts my kids. And instead of me driving them towards God because of my unwillingness to repent and confess, then I'm driving them away from the heart of God. Not only does sin negatively impact those around us, but we also see that sin removes God's presence and blessing. The reason why when Israel went up against Ai and they were chased off is because of Achan's sin. And God makes it very clear that when they go from that place, that his presence will no longer go with them. And so when they got defeated, Joshua, he didn't know what happened. And so as he goes before the Lord, listen to what God says in verse 12b. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things among you. I don't know about you, but as a follower of Christ, I think those words would be one of the scariest words that I could possibly hear from God where God tells me, I will be with you no more. When God says, I will be with you no more, he's saying that his presence would no longer go before his people. It means that they would no longer walk in his blessings and his power and his favor. And as a result of God's presence not going before the people anymore, that when they stood in front of their enemies, that instead of experiencing God's victory, that they were always gonna experience defeat. I'm sure for many of us, yeah, we strive to live our lives in God's victory and his presence, that we want to experience his power. But the reality is that when we refuse to engage in confession and repentance, it pulls us further and further away. From his presence right have you ever noticed when you sin and usually it's the holy spirit right away that comes and that pricks your conscience and in that moment whether it's sin against god maybe sin against another brother and sister in christ in that moment when the holy spirit pricks your conscience you have a decision Either you can confess or you can ignore. And if you confess, yes, that process might be painful, maybe embarrassing. But what happens is that when you respond to the Spirit of God, His voice becomes more familiar, right? It becomes a little bit more clear. His leading and prompting, it becomes a little bit more powerful versus If you choose to ignore that prompting, then his voice becomes a little bit less certain. It becomes a little bit less powerful and influential in your life. And if you keep moving in that direction, you're going to come to church and you're going to do all the things that you know you should be doing. Worshiping, going to the Bible study, reading the Bible and so forth. But you're going to feel in your heart, how come God never speaks to me? How come when the pastor preaches about walking in the power and the promise and the presence of God and having certainty in the promises that He's spoken into my life, how come I don't feel any of these things in my heart? And maybe, just maybe, it's because you have chosen to ignore His promptings. Maybe it's because you have chosen to ignore God's prompting of calling you to engage in confession and repentance. Sin removes us from God's presence and blessing. Not only that, but ultimately we see sin results in God's judgment. The consequences of Achan's disobedience, it brings about God's judgment. And we know that it's not just this story, but there's so many others. Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, there was judgment. 2 Samuel 6, when Israel was moving the Ark of the Covenant. Like this is a crazy story. So Israel was moving the Ark of the Covenant and God specifically told them not to touch the Ark. But when they were moving the Ark, there was an individual who took hold of the Ark because the ox cart that it was on, it started stumbling. And so he thought, oh, I got to reach out and maybe try to stabilize it. But as soon as he did that, poof, God's judgment, And it means that God takes our obedience seriously. You see such severity of punishment because it's not about what you are doing, right? Because if you focus on what you are doing, then this doesn't make any sense. So he took some robe, some some silver, some gold bar, but he got stoned? We don't do that in our modern society. That seems so barbaric, right? So if you focus on what he did, then it doesn't make sense. But we need to understand sin not in the context of what we do, but the issue is who you sin against, right? And so if you sin against a table or a chair, if you can do such a thing, not a big deal. I remember two summers ago, we went down to Florida, which is in the southern part of the U.S., and we're driving around. There's a long bridge system in the southern part of Florida, and my family and I, we've never been there, so we were driving around, and then we saw some seagulls flying around, and we're like, oh, seagulls. And then, as we were driving our minivan, we saw this seagull swooping down in front of our car, and then next thing you know it, poof. We just saw feathers everywhere. And so first, we were in shock, we were like, "Oh!" And then five seconds later, we're like, all right, what are we going to eat for lunch, right? Because we didn't stop. We didn't pull over and go, oh my gosh, we killed a bird. We got to turn ourselves into the police. I mean, it's tragic and it was sad. We were in shock. We're like, oh my gosh, that crazy bird just ran into our car. And then we thought, okay, what's for lunch? But if you sin against a human being, then you're going to be held guilty for what you did. Now, think about that. Now, if you sin against an infinite God who is infinitely great, infinitely holy, and infinitely perfect, then no matter what that action is, you're going to be held infinitely guilty because God is infinitely worthy. So it's not about what you do, but it's about who you are doing that against. Don't miss the weight of sin that we see in these verses. It impacts those around us. It removes us from God's presence and it results in God's judgment. Not only do we need to understand the seriousness of sin, but I believe that in in this passage, it also points us to really helping us to see the hope that we need to grasp the hope that God provides. That even as God points out the seriousness of sin, that he also helps us to see the hope that we can have. That hope comes through our confession. So even as we feel the weight of sin, we can know hope from our sin. Look at verse 13 through 15. Joshua is telling this to the people. He says, get up, consecrate. God is telling this to Joshua. He's saying, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by house. and the household that the Lord takes come near man by man. And so even as God lets his people know that there are devoted things in the midst, he says what? That I'm going to come and I'm going to confront you. And basically what he's saying is, I'm going to give you till the morning. Now, this might be reading into this passage a bit, right? But I believe, I truly believe that if Achan responded right away, because he had that opportunity to confess. I believe that if he responded right away, then he would have experienced God's forgiveness because the Bible makes it very clear that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That I believe that it is God's heart to forgive and to restore. Otherwise, Christ would never have come and he would have never died for our sins. That Christ came not because we were deserving, but Christ came even while we were still sinners. So when Achan and his family, when they heard what Joshua said, in the morning you shall be brought near by your tribe and so forth, he had the opportunity to come clean, to, to confess. But Achan, he still remained silent until he was finally exposed. And when he was finally exposed, Achan confessed. But that's not the confession that God is looking for, right? In the Bible, it distinguishes, it dis- delineates between a worldly grief that we experience and there's also a godly grief or godly sorrow that we experience. And so when Achan finally says, okay, I'm the one who took the devoted things, he's basically experiencing a worldly grief. 2 Corinthians 7 through 10 says this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now I think the best way to describe worldly sorrow or worldly grief is really this temporary reaction to our bad or wrong behaviors. Right? Because regardless of whether you're a believer or not, when we do something wrong, I think innately we feel bad or I hope that we feel bad. But the problem is not that we feel bad, but the problem is that the focus is more on how it makes us feel. And I see this all the time, especially in our members. When we talk about the issue of sin and when they realize that sinned against God, that realization is great, but what that realization ultimately leads them to because they're focusing on themselves, they think about how does this make me feel? And so, yes, they, they're sorrowful and they, you know, they cry and they lament over their sin, but ultimately it doesn't produce in them life. Because it's worldly sorrow. It's worldly grief. A Christian author once said this, worldly sorrow is feeling sorry for yourself but not sorry enough to turn to God in real life change. Think about that. Worldly sorrow is not that you don't feel sorry. You feel sorry for yourself, but not sorry enough so that you're running to God to change your life. But the Word of God says godly sorrow, it produces repentance that leads to life. In other words, godly sorrow means that it goes beyond just you feeling bad about your actions. But godly sorrow, it anchors us in the reality that our actions, it grieves the heart of God, and it pushes us away from Him, which means that when we engage in godly sorrow, It means that we're willing to enter into God's pain and sorrow over our sins. And that's what grieves our heart. Not just our bad actions and the decisions and the way that we hurt others, but ultimately what grieves our heart is this realization that when we sin against God, that it pains God's heart. That's what Godly sorrow is. And when you're willing to do that, when you're willing to enter into God's pain and sorrow over your sin, when I'm willing to do that over my sin, the the Bible promises that God will meet us not with wrath and disappointment, but He's going to meet us with faithfulness and forgiveness. John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when we come before God and when we recognize the sorrow and the hurt that we've caused in God's heart, God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to meet with you and I'm going to be faithful to you and I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to cleanse you. And that When we do that, when we're willing to enter into God's pain and sorrow, God will meet us, not through His disappointment, but through His commitment and His love for you. Right? That's the great thing about God. You know, when I was a kid, whenever I failed to meet up to my dad's expectation... There was always that struggle and that insecurity of what if I confess these things to him? And he says, man, son, I'm so disappointed. But with God, he says, now listen to what he says. Verse Psalm 32, five, this is David writing. He says, when I acknowledge my sin to you, And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you what? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. God doesn't wag his finger in our face and says, I'm so disappointed. But God comes to us and he says, I'm still committed to you. And I still love you. And that when we come before him and when we're willing to enter into God's pain and sorrow, God speaks his life and freedom into us again. Acts 3, 19 through 20, it says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That when you confess, times of refreshing will come. God says, I will speak life into you again. God says, I will speak my freedom into you again. Confession, it's not for God's benefit. Because the reality is that when we come before God in confession and repentance, God is never surprised. I don't think there was ever a moment in my life when I came before Him in repentance and confession, God was like, oh my gosh, Ben, what happened? Like, I can't, man, I, did I die for you on the? I don't know, did I make the right choice? The wrong. God is never surprised. He doesn't need us to tell him that we messed up because he already knows. He knows the ways that we sinned against him in the past. He knows the ways that we will continue to sin against him in the present and even in the future. Yes, our lives are still not perfect. It's it's a work in progress. But with all of that knowledge, knowing all of our faults, God is willing to step into our lives to say, I love you. But biblical confession and repentance, it's not about God needing to know, but it's about us that through confession and repentance, That God works to set us free from shame and guilt. Because when we turn to God in confession and repentance, we find what? We find a heavenly father who runs to meet us. We find a heavenly father who celebrates in our return. We find a heavenly father who doesn't say, man, I'm so ashamed of you. But we find a heavenly father who says, I'm so proud that you're my son and my daughter. And he makes everyone know that you're back. And he says, throw a party for my son who was dead is now back alive to me. My daughter is back. And he rejoices. Biblical confession and repentance, it's not so that God can know the list of things that we've done wrong. But God uses our confession and repentance to remind us that He desires for us to experience His freedom, experience His wholeness. But the only way that we will be able to do that if we're willing to step in to understanding that when we sin, that it brings pain and hurt to God's heart. And when we can recognize that in our lives, God uses that to change us I wanna encourage us, run to God in confession and repentance because it's not about the size of your offense, but it's about who you are committing your offense against. And the one that you are committing your offense against is merciful, he is gracious, and he's willing to forgive. So the one thing for us, again, simply is this, it's through our confession that we are able to know and freely receive God's grace and forgiveness. So how do we apply this? One thing, embrace the discipline of consistent confession and repentance, right? Embrace the discipline of consistent confession and repentance. In our church, we talk about the five R's of repentance. First R is reflect on the cross. I think in order for us to experience genuine confession, biblical confession and repentance, it has to start not by us realizing that there's something wrong in our hearts, but by realizing the grace that was demonstrated for us on the cross, So spend some time reflecting on the cross. This realization that while you you were sinners, that Christ came and he died for you. That on the cross of Christ that you see the lavishness of his love for you. And as you reflect on the cross, then start repenting of your sins. Start confessing the brokenness inside of you the ways that you have maybe disobeyed God, the ways that you have hurt your brothers and sisters. And so when you think about repentance, what we are doing is, first of all, we're seeking reconciliation in our relationship with God, but then also, biblically, we're also seeking reconciliation in our relationship with one another. Repent of your sin and seek that reconciliation with God and with one another. So as you reflect on the cross, as you repent of your sin, then you receive God's forgiveness and cleansing, right? The great thing about our heavenly father is that when we come before him, he doesn't leave us in our guilt, but he speaks his forgiveness and cleansing into our lives. Where the Bible says he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. You know, I remember when my kids were young, I would ask them, how far is the east from the west? And they'd be like, It's pretty far. Yes, it's really far. That God says, when you come before me in repentance, I will no longer remember your sins. Like, think about how crazy that is. God who is perfect, God who is all-knowing, that because we are covered in the righteousness of Christ, God says, I will no longer remember your sin. Receive God's forgiveness and cleansing. And this is where you have to make sure that it is God who reigns over your life and not your guilt. Because sometimes in our sin, when we bring that before God, we can't receive His forgiveness because we're caught in the cycle of guilt. But when we let our guilt dictate who we are instead of God's forgiveness, what you are saying in in essence is guilt is your God. Not the God of this universe, not the God who created you, who is able to speak his forgiveness into your life. So reflect on the cross, repent of your sins, receive God's forgiveness and cleansing. And as you receive his forgiveness and cleansing, then rebuke the enemy's hold on you because of the sin. Because the reality is that Satan is going to use that to try to tear you down, to bring about more guilt. Satan is going to start whispering things like, do you really think that you can change? I mean, look at your past track record. Look at all the people that you have hurt in the past. Look at all the devastation that you've caused. Do you really think X, Y, and Z? And that's when you need to Remember that, no, no, this is not the truth. So you rebuke the enemy's stronghold because you know that you've been forgiven and cleansed. And as you rebuke the enemy's hold on you, then you replace all lies with God's truth. Reflect on the cross. Repent of your sins. Receive God's forgiveness and cleansing. Rebuke the enemy's stronghold and replace all lies with God's truth. Don't minimize your sins before God. Be honest with God. But don't maximize your sins before God either. That as you are honest before God, maximize His glory. Maximize His mercy. Maximize His grace and respond to His kindness that leads us to repentance. So as we close out our time together, can I just give us a moment to think about those five R's? Spend some time reflecting on the cross. And as you spend some time reflecting on the cross, let God lead you. Maybe you know when it comes to this area of confession and repentance, already some of you know that these are the areas that I need to address in my life. Or maybe as you begin to reflect on the cross, God is going to bring up things. And as you reflect on the cross, repent. In that process of repentance, maybe some of you will realize that, man, I need to seek reconciliation from this one, one person. Respond to that. And as you repent, receive. Receive the forgiveness that God has for you. And you let the enemy know, Satan, you no longer have influence in my life. And you replace that lie with God's truth. So can we do that together for a little bit? And I always tell our church, whatever is the most comfortable for you, that means you want to close your eyes and pray through it. That means you want to have your eyes open and kind of spend some time just reflecting. But the, let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let Him minister to you. Let Him remind you of the freedom that He wants to speak into your life. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.